0: Hello and welcome to OEG Voices, OEG Voices, OEG Voices, OEG Voices, a podcast bringing to you the voices and ideas of open educators from around the world. OEG Voices is produced by Open Education Global, a member-based non-profit organization supporting the development and use of open education globally.
1: Learn more about us at oeglobal.org.
0: There's much to take in at a global level. We hope to bring you closer to how
1: open education is working by hearing the stories of practitioners told in their own voices. Each episode introduces you to a global open educator.
0: And we invite you to later engage in conversation with them in our OEG Connect community.
1: Time again for OEG Voices. I'm your host from Open Education Global, Alan Levine, and I am horribly embarrassed. I am shockingly embarrassed at how bad I am at podcasting because this episode, episode 31, is out of sequence. Why? Because it was recorded way back in February. This is when I was exploring the concept of taking the podcast on the road. And my colleague, who you're going to hear from in this episode, Bonnie Stahoviak, who's the host of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, was willing to have me on her show and let me use the recording to publish as another episode here on OEG Voices. And somehow I forgot to do it. She published it back in March as episode 405. And here I am with episode 31, out of sequence. So we're going to listen to us. And she let me talk a little bit about My uh, ideas on openness as an attitude, but we talked a lot about other very interesting things. Of course, Bonnie brings in so much experience from her conversations on her own show and her own practice as an educator, but we talk about um, things like... Uh, annotation and annotating faucets of all things, Uh, the SIFT interface and what it means for uh, practicing understanding information literacy, and and much much more. Uh, Bonnie, (laughs) she took care of editing the, the episode, she published it, she gave me the the audio file, she gave me the transcript, all the links, and I didn't do a thing, so I'm really sorry Bonnie, but also as a theme We happen, if you listen to, talk about our interest in what we call our magic numbers. Mine's 106, hers is 208. There's something about ice cream in the mix. Um, And as always, it was a fun conversation. So again, please, Bonnie, with um, all my heart, accept my humble apologies for being so late in publishing. But this was such a great conversation. I'm glad I finally got around to publishing it. So I hope everybody enjoys this episode. And also I hope they go to teaching in uh, to listen to Bonnie's episodes because um, her production capability is a lot better than mine. <laughs> okay, here we go.
0: Alan, welcome back to teaching in higher ed.
1: It's great to be here, Bonnie.
0: I understand that you and I are taking this show on the road. Although I don't, I don't love traveling. What I love, kind of doing, is sitting down on a couch. So instead of on a road, maybe we're on a couch today, perhaps. Are we sitting on a couch? Sure,
1: we can do that. We, we can sit on a couch, a lounge chair, <laughs> whatever's whatever is comfortable. Uh, but you know, I, I had this thought after going to someone else's podcast of. Uh, When you do this, like um, as a host, you're inviting someone into your place. And and yeah, it's usually a Zoom room or it's just, but really you're the host. And I kind of imagine what would happen if we record it on your couch or your space. And I don't know, it probably doesn't make a difference. We're still having a conversation, but it's just one of Alan's weird back of the mind thoughts.
0: So I think... I think um, one of the things you're reminding me of as we get into talk today about open education more broadly is really entering into other people's spaces. And as you were describing that, you know, coming to join someone on the road or kind of take a little bit of perspective taking... It is just dawning on me right now that in some ways I did some of that work before the pandemic. So I can vividly remember when we switched from using Skype, which was audio only, our technical setup switched so we would do Zoom, and then I found it really intriguing that there would be some people who had a very strong preference for having that simulated eye contact and being able to see that. And then some who were like, no, 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 no. And it re- it was very... Drastic. I didn't. I didn't do a complete uh, analysis on it, but from memory, a lot of it was that men seemed to, and maybe it was just the happened to be the men I was speaking to, but really liked to have the eye contact, and then women tended to not. Just, just in all generalities, and so I can remember being very surprised when we made the switch, and then someone, can we turn the video camera? And I thought, oh gosh, I have no makeup on and just look terrible. And one person going, you look so different. I don't know what it is. And I'm going it's because I look horrible today because I didn't know I was going to have my camera on. But really now just so much more of an ease with the most of the time now the camera is on and an ease with, yeah, I'm going to show up however I'm going to show up that day. But really, there is that intimacy of entering another person's space. And for some people, that was a that was really a not a welcome invitation. and, um, But I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it mo- most of the time. I enjoy it. And it's also painful, but in good ways, you know, to be experiencing that, not just with another person, but also then trying to envision, which I try not to do too much, you know, the, the people who are on the other end. So as we get started in this conversation, I'd like to invite you to just share a little bit on open education. Do you see that as a movement and, or do you see it as a way of being? Is it both? Is it neither? I, 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 I'd love to hear you share a little bit about that.
1: I, I will. I kind of want to pick up because that dynamic that you described to me, it's one of these pitfalls where we find it's, you can't be assertive about either being right, because I have had really brilliant conversations through audio only through the Skype or um, whatever means where it was just the conversation that made it felt like we were all there. And so that can work. But there is something often in conversations where it is valuable because we don't have the body language in audio only. And so there, there was something valuable about being able to see the person we're talking with. So I don't feel comfortable saying absolute whether either one is correct. And, you know, that goes into talking about, you know, open education as as a whole thing. So, uh, yeah, it's a movement and, you know, you could, you know, trace the origins back to all the things that were done in in distance and open learning that preceded the Internet and and that whole history um, up to the major event of MIT with introducing their open courseware initiative, where they basically gave away the shop in terms of course materials, which, you know, leads to some of the questions that already came on Twitter. It's like, you know, course materials is not the course experience. But that, that was an impetus, you know, and as of lately, you know, the thing that's been the big energizer to, to no secret is the concept of open textbooks and, you know, addressing student needs of affordability at the same time, giving faculty the customization to not just take what publishers shove at them. So, yeah, yeah, it's a movement because I guess, you know, it's a movement because, you know, maybe not everybody's on board or not everybody understands it. And so for me, openness has always been like an attitude or, or way of being. That doesn't really answer anything for, for people who want to understand what open education is about. And, you know, it's, it's broadest aim is, you know, the simplest thing of making it accessible to anyone, you know, regardless and, and not as a, a commodity, but also that it's more than materials, that it's, you know, practices and ideas and exchange. But for a long time, it's felt like the focus has been on the things, the pile of things. And it it used to be learning objects. And, you know, then it was OERs and, and it's textbooks. And they're all important. And they're all things that are key to the work that we do. But I've really always been more interested by just kind of the human dynamic of what it means to be in a potential space where we we can have connection and community at the same time, the dark side of the yin yang circle that we constantly see is that's there too. And so it's something to wrestle with. So uh, again, like the, you know, is it better to do podcasts where you see the person with cameras on or cameras off? It depends. Like, I can't say a hundred percent for sure. I don't feel comfortable espousing like absolutes in something that's so complex.
0: It reminds me a lot of the conversations around educational technology in general, and that is just what are the affordances? One of the things I notice now is that there are there's way less crosstalk, especially when there may be three authors, co-authors on a book, and maybe they all come on, and they, they can kind of, we sort of learn our own social norms as we join, and there's just less crosstalk, yet if we were only audio right now and couldn't see each other now, I think there's a part of me that, because I I actually, in those cases, like to close my eyes because I like to picture that Again, podcasting is such an intimate medium. So you're you're actually with that person. People will tell me, oh yeah, I took you. Sarah Rose Cavanaugh just the other day said, I took you for a walk. You and Josh Eiler for a walk with the dog or whatever. I really someone has a a lake walk that they do with the podcast. They've got it you know planned into their week and all that kind of thing. So to imagine with my eyes closed and not having to be performative at all to attempt to to resolve anyone's nerves on the other end with whatever you know i also had to be really careful actually early on doing what today we call i would call classroom observations but this was a computer training company so we didn't call it that but but sitting in people's classes because the more that they were really getting me to think and and challenging me in a really good way, the more my eyebrows <laughs> would go down. So I had to train myself to like eyebrows go up while you're taking notes because it, it was it was actually more of a compliment if the eyebrows were down because it was like oh wow you're making me think really hard. And um, anyway, so I think about those affordances and 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 those kinds of ways that that you know people might come across. So this actually takes us to and by the way, the question that you had mentioned, um, yeah about using open ed, open educational resources when, you know, what would students feel like they're getting? And I think there's a lot we could say as far as creating those experiences. And I I tried to use the word being a curator a lot. So I think too many faculty think we have to make this stuff up for ourselves. So anyway, this gets us to Terry Green's question. He asked about what motivates you to share so openly And he mentioned splots, which, uh, again, for people who haven't been um, super familiar, a a real way of creating sharing within a course through blogs that can come from lots of different sources and photography and blogging. So what motivates you to do that? And he says, Terry Green says, and also, please ask him never to stop. So could you talk a little bit about what motivates you?
1: Terry Green does, because he's so... he's so nice and generous and and such a a consummate. And I've gotten to work with, with, with Terry a lot. I I guess it's the things that happen that are often unexpected. And so you can't go to a thing like, Oh, I'm going to start sharing stuff. So people contact me and they use my pictures on books or they, you can't go with the expectation of happening. So the magic of serendipity is when You're not looking for it. And someone responds, you know, it's as simple as, you know, it used to be the old, you know, um, when blogging was the rage and teachers were starting to do it and students would be blogging about, you know, an author they're reading. Then the author would join the conversation. I mean, that would change the experience for an incredible number of people just to have that glancing, unexpected blow. So I, I kind of live for those moments. I don't know. It just, it always since I started this work, it just seemed the way to go. It just seemed like that is what I can do. And what I like most want to do is like do it in a way like, I don't want to sound like, oh, I'm promoting my stuff or my stuff is great. And it's not about me, but a lot of it is um, sharing the way I always thought I was influenced by John Udell, brilliant computer scientist who had this concept of uh, what happens if people narrate their work. Meaning, and we might have even talked about this in our first episode, see how blurry my memory is, that often, you know, in many fields, but also in education, um, you know, we're pushed towards, you know, publishing the final paper or getting the presentation or the video or the thesis. And so what happens to that whole journey of things that you learn, the wrong turns, things that got left on the cutting room floor that you did to get to that point. And so we often don't capture that and you know not that I want to turn into a life recorder, but you know to me it always helped when people um, I respected or just followed or learned from would sort of share how they went about challenging problems whether they're technical, whether they're about whether they're pedagogical. So they they sh- sort of share how their mind works in a little bit and that always appealed to me but Mostly what I found, Bonnie, is that there's some mix of kind of participating in other people's spaces, you know, and it it can be as simple as, you know, joining a Twitter thread or, you know, commenting on a blog or giving someone feedback. Those are really positive ways in the open field to participate and contribute that don't involve publishing or picking licenses or all that stuff. But just a small level of giving back to someone else because I think it creates some virtuous cycles. And uh, what I found and, and you know one of the things I wanted to talk about is, is you know it's so easy we say, oh Twitter's terrible today, it's horrible, it's a dumpster fire. And it is in places, but in many other places you find such warmth and generosity and so it's a complex environment. And there's something about, that and and other social spaces, you know, to some degree, you know, I, I don't even need to name them that, you know, somehow I read someone who reads Bonnie and then I see their conversation. She looks interesting. And all of a sudden I start following you and then I'm kind of tapped into the people that you have conversations or share with. And to me, that just seems to be like, like increasing the potential serendipity power of what can happen to you. And I just think, Doing that in a way that doesn't like become a full-time job, but does it comes back in in beneficial ways, but it takes time. And to me, that's just what my experience has been, but I can't really say it works for anybody else. So to to Terry's end, you know, sharing pictures. Well, I just always I like photography and I just started something inspired by a colleague of just trying to take photos every day, not to you know, notch a you know a board on the wall because I, many years I'm like 340 out of 365, but devoting time effort to say like I'm going to step away from my work for 15 minutes. I'm going to go outside and look for something interesting, or I'm going to, um, you know, I'm looking around my room and just like, is there some detail? I've been in this room you know, how many thousands of times, but the way the lights falling on the floor or the way those books are arranged, you can always see something new in a familiar space. And to me, that's always, it's been a useful creative, you know, driver for me Uh, again, but I can't say that works for other people. And so, but it's just become a habit and a thing that sustains me. And I, I know when I'm in ruts with my work or my project, When I come up with something, I think I can just, you know, my wife always calls it disappearing down the rabbit holes and and finding one thing that leads to another to another. I I kind of pay attention, especially online, to things that just raise my curiosity. And so, like, you know, random pictures from the Library of Congress in my new browser tabs. I love those. It's this Chrome extension. And it just makes me stop and think, like, what is going on in that picture? And so I, I like the creative juices that come from that.
0: I want to have you help me through something I've been thinking about. So by the time this airs, I'm fairly sure this episode will already be out. So I will have already done this. But as of today, our recording, I have not. I spoke with Rami Khalir yesterday and his project, Annotate 22. And what we spoke about in that episode is that one of our children annotated the only faucet in our entire house. (sighs) that has a separate faucet for hot than it does cold. And unbeknownst to me, they had gone upstairs, printed it out from my fancy label printer. I didn't even, because they can access that. and pr- I mean, it's not like someone has to be sitting there to log them in or anything. It's just a label printer. And so I've been wanting to take a picture of of that. But candidly, right now, our recycling bin is overflowing in that particular room. So I'm waiting until that gets taken care of and everything. But I I keep thinking like I want it to be special. I want it to be special. I don't know how to approach this. So if you have something that seems rather ordinary like that, I mean, although it's special because it's annotated and everything, but it's a faucet. It's a bathtub faucet. How, How might you go about approaching that from a photographer's eye wanting to be able to see it differently how what would be some ideas you would give someone of wanting to capture this and in, in a, some unique kind of way
1: well that's, that's a good question and it put me in the spot because i think you know and to some degree photography is the act of you know cropping out from the world in detail and so it's how you f- the framing is always important so you know it's do, do you fill the, the the image as much as possible with this uh this faucet to emphasize what's different? Or do you put it way down in the corner to show where it fits into its larger surroundings? Um, do you think of some curious object, like um, like a Lego figure that you can, stip on, it, it can sit on top like he's trying to do construction on it? You know, sometimes it's changing the light in, in that room. Um, you know, of course, in the, you know, that kind of room, you may not have the option, but things can change whether you do it in, um, in bright daylight Or you could, you know, you could go in at night and illuminate it with a flashlight and make it kind of spooky. You know, it doesn't always work. Sometimes you're just looking at something and um, you're saying, "Uh, I just don't, there's nothing there. So you you might take it for fun and it it might work out. You might be able to edit it. You know, I do edit my photos. Other times I know I've been outside usually and it's just something about the light. And something says to me, there's a picture here. And I don't know what it is, but if I maybe I need to get down on the ground and, and change perspective. Maybe I need to shift so it's more backlit than frontlit. Um, but the I I guess the you know the rules of photography are like really pay attention to light because that that's everything. And so maybe there's good reflections off of the faucet, like sparkles or things like that. Um, And maybe it's something that is kind of flat and but may look more interesting if you did it black and white or made it look like an antique photo. Uh, I I don't know if if that gets anywhere, but I I I will look forward to seeing what you produce with that photo. I I just can't but remember I I used to when I was long ago and I used to travel, I was always amazed at different hotels, especially in in various parts of the world where you'd go into a hotel shower and there'd be a different kind of interface that you've never seen before. And some of them had elaborate instructions. Like I saw one with a seven page, like a seven point list of how to operate the shower. <laughs> and so I started collecting somewhere on Flickr. Mm. I've, I've got a, a tag set of um, uh, showers as interface items. Because, you know, if you get the hot water wrong, you're going to burn yourself. And that's not a good thing. But it's just funny that it's a thing as simple as a faucet it has so many ways to be designed that someone thinks is ideal and generally for the user ends up being like, oh, I don't know how to use this thing.
0: Yeah, there's two things that are coming out of what you just shared and thank you for that. One is that you you do it a lot. I mean, you, you try a lot of different things. You try it with the bright light. You try it with another light so that... that that's um, when I have been successful at creating what I consider to be really beautiful images, it's because I took 400 that weren't. So, you know, it's nice that digital space is not, you know, too too troublesome these days. And of course, you can always just delete the ones you don't care for if you're concerned about the storage space and all of that. But that's so try it different ways. Try try you know. But then the other thing that's coming out is that Of course, there's not just one way to do it. And that's the trouble that we get in sometimes is thinking, you know, oh, Alan would know the right way to do this. He's a good photographer. I'm not. And that self-talk is what gets us into trouble. And, And candidly, I just want to mention real quick, I took a photography class when I was in college and I'm remembering today speaking to you that I spent all this time and got really excited about taking, the, one of the assignments was a portrait assignment. So I got this beautiful student who I knew and she would stand outside of these statues and I got what I considered to just be beautiful pictures of a woman I thought was beautiful, who I did not know well, but I was really proud of that work. And I got a C on the assignment. And the I remember vividly the, the professor writing, well, there was just nothing different about these photographs and I thought well it's different this is a beautiful woman and it's a beautiful campus and these are beautiful statues I don't even know what you mean it wasn't different enough <laughs> like like how I, I it was really both um, something i took very personally and i think if we're spending so much time to try to make something different i i think that's maybe not my goal as a photographer and here was a professor assuming that i wanted something you know I wanted to capture what I saw. I didn't want to capture something that would be so different. You know what I mean? And anyway, so much there as far as teaching and all of that. I did also want to say one other thing, and that is that I challenged myself because I, I feel I, I can just get in this mode. And one thing that I got into was feeling like I wasn't good enough or smart enough to do Mike Caulfield's SIFT. And I had him on the show and I followed all his stuff and I I did all of that. And then when coronavirus hit and I had students, they would bring in on sticky notes this week in business ethics news and they would stick it on the back wall. And I remember when one sticky note was about this thing called coronavirus or COVID or whatever. And then before you know it, you know, two weeks later, there were practically all that. And then before you know it, we weren't, of course, in that classroom anymore, but a lot of misinformation coming that way. So I told myself, you cannot do this anymore. And I forced myself to create a playlist on my YouTube channel. That's for my ongoing sift. And I, I mean, of course, how could I expect myself to know as much as a man who does this for a living? This is his life's work. I mean, why why would I hold myself to that standard? So I'm just trying. But it's, it's every time I post a video, I go, I, I laugh because there's like 20 views. <laughs> it's not like it's out there. But I think one of the fears that we can have, though, is. Some part of us being really wrong or stupid is going to be out there on the Internet for everyone to see forever. So I don't know if you have that, Alan. Do you have things where you look back and you go, well, I don't certainly don't think that today or I was wrong or I, you know, do you perceive old you older you from years ago as not knowing oh. what you're talking about, but you still leave it up there anywhere for preservation?
1: All the time. But I, I have to let you know that on my clock here, we recently passed 2.08 p.m. And we'll we'll get back to <laughs> 2.08. But I just want to let you know how I was noticing. I
0: love it. Speaking uh, of noticing things.
1: Th- there is... Uh, we chat about this before, and I'm trying to think of the way to articulate it. This thing where we're kind of always measuring ourselves to someone else—the experts in the field or the people who know more—and downplaying, you know, what what we do. And you can't get around it. And you know, there there is a name for it. I'm not going to throw it out, but we all know what it is, and we all have it, and, and we all deal with it. And and I, what I found is, I don't care if there's something because that's not me 10 years ago. So if I have something and I will find things I've written before that I've been wrong, that I disagree with now, but that's okay because I'm not a clone of that person. I mean, I, I'm, I'm different. And that was part of where I am now. And I don't mind being wrong. And, you know, I, I found in my teaching that it was it's quite beneficial to mess up in front of my students, like, you know, to, to do something wrong, to run the technology wrong, to have something break, because I show them the problem isn't failing. It's the problem is like, you know, not trying to remedy or, or work our way around it. So we we kind of have this self built in uh, idea of perfection that we can that we can be. And so I, I kind of tried to be just be kind of a goofball where, where appropriate. And so not to take myself so seriously that I think I have to be this perfect person. My blog posts are are riddled with typos. When I go back and see old ones, it's like, I don't have time to fix them all. Or, you know, there's broken links, but I don't think I have to be this perfect entity. And I, I think, you know, again, but you have to come to this on your own. You have to find and develop. You know your personality, and you know when you look around you and see your colleagues, and you're like in all of you know I'm in all of Mike Caulfield. Like I can't phrase things like him, but I shouldn't try to. And so we, you have to get to some point, hopefully, where you kind of cultivate and develop your own confidence and your own uh, approach to things. And, and I've I found long ago with certain things and this kind of. May feed into the one of the questions that came from um, from Joe Murphy uh, that uh, I think the bigger problem uh, that we face both with with the students we teach and with doing faculty development is like finding that right way to help people understand that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to say like. I'm an idiot. I don't know. You don't say it. I'm an idiot, but I don't know how to do this. I I broke this or um, I messed up. Um, can I get help? I think people feel like they have to figure stuff out. And, uh, you know, this came when I was doing my media classes and, uh, and my students would blog their progress and I would read things in their blog that would be like, you know, I was trying to do this one technique in you know, in GIMP and I spent, you know, an hour and a half trying to figure out how to do an alpha mask. And that's where I came up with the rule that, that, Joe described is um, not, not that it was a rule because I couldn't enforce it, but I would suggest like if you spent 15 minutes trying to find a solution to something, especially technical, you know, you search for it everywhere, you, you've watched a video. If you get to the 15 minute mark and you've gotten nowhere, you know, ask either me or your, your student colleagues. Cause we had, you know, we were a small community of a class. Like it's okay to ask for help. I, I think that's such a barrier for a lot of people. Um, even me, like we had this thing that says, oh, if I do this, I'm going to look stupid. They're all going to think I'm stupid. Or that, that is a a big narrative, um, in the back of, of, of my mind. And, you know, I've, I've done some talks where I would ask people to, you know, write what their obstacles to sharing are. And, And generally it's that thing of my work isn't as good. I don't do anything special. And, um that's a hard one to sort of get around. And you just have to, you know, encourage, embrace. Um, And and to me, like, I like to model like being imperfect, because I am extremely imperfect.
0: Well, this is a perfect transition for me to head us over to the recommendation segment. I have two I'd like to recommend today, two links for people to check out with two overriding principles. One is to remember it's not linear, and the post I'd like to share is from Clint Smith, his Instagram post, and for those not familiar with him, he a, has a Harvard PhD and has a New York Times bestselling book called How the Word is Passed. and he wrote this on his Instagram post when he appeared in Harvard's Monthly alumni magazine, I believe it is. He writes, The first time I applied to Harvard, I didn't get in. I was bummed. But I put my head down, applied the next year, and was accepted. Then in the third year of my Ph.D. program, I failed my comprehensive exams and had to take them a second time, with the understanding that if I failed them again, I would be kicked out of the program. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I felt like a fraud and a failure. I felt like I was on the verge of disappointing everyone around me. It was a real low point. I eventually took the exams again and passed the second time, but I'm writing this because I think it can be easy for people to create a clean, neat, linear narratives about your life and how one thing just naturally led to another and how it was always all peaches and roses. That's rarely the case, and it definitely wasn't the case for me after getting this out of the mailbox, and the picture, by the way, is his face on the cover of their magazine, after getting this out of the mailbox, I realized that this is probably why seeing my graduate school magazine with my face on it, the graduate school I was one exam away from being kicked out of, is really surreal. Could have never imagined something like this after getting that email that made my heart sink five years ago. I'm grateful for those who held me down in those hard moments and who reminded me that no matter what happened, my value as a person was not contingent on being affiliated with any school, any program, or any degree. Thanks to Ed Magazine for the generous feature and interview, Wild Times. The second little lesson and then anecdote or artifact I'd like to pass on is to take the time for feedback. And this is another social media post, although this time on Twitter. And this is from Corey Stoughton. And she writes, basement flood, opening boxes haven't peaked in for years. The forgotten highlight of my entire existence. And I didn't realize the Harvard connection until this very moment. This is Harvard Law School letterhead. And it is uh, from a name that might be familiar to some people, and that's Elena Kagan, who is on our Supreme Court, a Supreme Court justice in the United States, and her title at the time, Visiting Professor of Law. This is June 22, 2001, and she writes, Dear Ms. Stoughton, just a quick note to thank you for an excellent exam. You hit all the questions just right. It was a pleasure to read. Thanks, too, for your excellent class participation. Congratulations, and I hope you're having a wonderful summer. And this reminds me a little bit, Alan, of earlier when I told that story of the theater professor telling me that my portraits weren't. I mean, these are things we carry in our minds and our hearts and that they either can affirm our value as human beings or they can detract from our sense of value and contribution. And so I'm just going to say, we got to take that time for feedback. And just imagine we could wind up in somebody's either literal or digital file cabinet someday and and let them rediscover the ways that we're edifying their lives and their work.
1: That's beautiful. And it, it takes some experience to get to that point of saying, whether your photo instructor had that opinion, it's like, that photo mattered to me. And and there was something there that, that is important. And uh, I know I couldn't do that as a student. Like I can only do it as a much older student right now. Thanks for sharing those. Uh, I did. I scribbled down some things. I, I, I like, you know, looked at links. I, you know, I've been saving in my pinboard. I still do social bookmarking. Uh, the first one is a site called, I never heard of this, youglish.com. And this is one of those things where like, I find out I don't know stuff every day. And uh, there was a discussion on one of our listservs where a faculty members asking about um, websites that provide pronunciation guides for terms for teaching art. And that there are some pronunciation websites, like how do you pronounce blah, but they're full of ads. And, and, you know, it's a little bit distracting. And so, you know, I thought about it and sort of my answer was like, well, you know, there's some of the online dictionaries that have the audio versions. And I thought of Wiktionary, the Wiki Dictionary, which has some audio ones. And, you know, I actually didn't get around to responding it. But there was another response from someone else on the list who who mentioned this site. And what it does is it archives selected uh, videos from YouTube that have that word and they must be searching or using the API to get them in the transcript. And you can find art terms. So, you know, I found Chiara Scoro, you know, um, which I remembered from art class. And, you know, you can, it has like 180 different videos where it has that in context. The, The beautiful thing about that is that it's helpful for understanding the pronunciation of the word, but you get it within the context of another discussion and it's available in like, 12 or 15 languages. So for people, like if I ever, you know, travel to France or something, and I want to understand some French words, I can sort of get them from there. And so whether the resource is any good or not, it's that continual reminder is that like, I don't know almost anything about anything on the internet. There's always something else out there. The other project I I kind of stumbled upon. and, And again, like, I come across these things, I look at them, I poke around a while, and I kind of register them away in the back of my mind. But the Open Syllabus Project has been um, mining this huge archive of, uh, of syllabi from classes, and they're ones that are publicly available from institutional websites. And But what they're doing is they aren't making the syllabi public because they, are, they do belong to people, but they've sort of... Analyze them and, and pulled out metadata from them to get things about like, what are the most popular readings assigned in a particular class or at a particular college or which of these are, how many are using open textbooks? And so it's an interesting way to use data in a way that sort of respects um, the privacy of the people who created these. Unlike, you know, the homework sites, which just scavenge student work and publish it Um, without their consent. And so there is a way, I mean, they have a call for people to share their syllabi if they want to contribute, but I I just thought it was an interesting project and a clever way of using a large data set to provide insight. So those are things that, you know, come along that I, I, you know, I just, you know, the eyebrow goes up and the hamburger menu, you know, gets clicked on. And, you know, if, if anything, That kind of curiosity is is something that, you know, I I hope, you know, I'll know I'm losing it if I kind of just shrug it off because that's been the the magic juice for me.
0: Mm. It has been such a pleasure to get to have Continued conversation with you in lots of different ways. And I'm so glad we got to go on the road today and sit on a couch and (laughs) get to connect in this way and and be able to share this between both of the podcasts, feels really special to me. So thank you so much. I'd like to thank Alan Levine for once again being a guest on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And I'd like to encourage you, if you've not already, to subscribe to the weekly Teaching in Higher Ed update where you can receive the show notes from today's episode, which there are lots of great links in this one, as well as the recommendations that show up on the episode, but also some a collection of recommendations that are growing over time that don't show up on the show, a little bit beyond what we cover here, as well as some quotable words and other resources. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe and thanks once again for being a part of teaching in higher ed. I'll see you next time.
1: And thank you, Bonnie, again. I'm going to do my outro over your uh, your outro music, too. And then I'll have my own music. And then we got Crossing Podcast and everything. But this has been another episode of OEG Voices, a uh, podcast produced by Open Education Global and we like to feature uh, the voices and the people behind Open Education and we publish them online at voices.oeglobal.org and then we ask you to join us in later conversation with them in our OEG Connect community so we can have even more discussion Um, and so I also want to let you know that my intro and outro music, separate from Bonnie's music, uh, but her podcast is also licensed Creative Commons Uh, CC um, by NCSA so thank you uh, Bonnie and Inside Higher Ed for letting me use uh, the soundtrack you recorded but the music I added um, is a track called Magic Numbers um, referencing both 106 and 208 um i uh, magic numbers is a track by a artist named alcove found on the free music archive and is license uh, attribution uh, license creative commons attribution non-commercial share like so all these licenses fit nicely together and so thank you again for anybody listening this episode and just to go to show that um bonnie's production of podcast is a wee bit better than mine but I'm learning I'm trying to catch up I am open in all of this and I hope everybody else is too thanks again and we hope you tune in again to another episode of OEG Voices